0: The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. That word I announce to you today. Let the church of Jesus Christ say. Death and taxes. The only two things we can be certain of, at least according to Benjamin Franklin. In the year 1900, the life expectancy for men in the United States was 42 For women, it was 45. By the year 2000, it was 72 for men and 78 for women. In 100 years, we nearly doubled the life expectancy for our population. We have figured out ways to hold back the inevitable reality of death through vaccinations and advanced diagnoses and treatment of illnesses that were formerly untreatable. 60 is the new 35, 70 is the new 50. 80 year olds are bungee jumping and setting weightlifting records. 90 year olds are climbing mountains. And this crazy 99 year old lady from Canada recently did this. She decided to ring in her upcoming 99th birthday with a grand adventure. It is her knack for living on the edge that gave her the courage to go all out. CTV's Michelle Brunoro has her story. At <laughs> almost 99 years old, Lucy Koenig might need some help getting around, but that's not enough to stop her from doing what she sets her mind to. I promised my great-grandson I'm going to jump with him. And now is the time. And it's time to go. Feeling ready? I'm ready. Thumbs up. All right, give us a big thumbs up. They climb to about 12,000 feet and jump, falling through the sky, taking in the moment, spinning around. Who does this at 99? Lucy Koenig does. And if you're wondering what risk-taking adventure she's got planned for her 100th birthday, well, she's still trying to figure that out. Yes! Welcome Uh, back, Lucy! Michelle Brunoro, CTV News, Abbott. And well, uh, folks, while we in the West may be moderately successful in postponing death, the U.S. is still only 47th in the world for life expectancy compared to Canada's 19th, so maybe we ought to all be doing more skydiving. (laughs) We know we can't postpone death too long. Eventually, and here are two euphemisms for you, our show is over, and two, we must fold up our parachutes. But though the life expectancy continues to grow and though we now avoid death on the regular in situations where our ancestors would have succumbed, we have been far less successful in avoiding paying taxes. Unless you are a corrupt billionaire with money held in sketchy offshore banks, and look, if that's you, you've got other problems to deal with. I don't need to rehearse for you that in our nation we pay city taxes, property taxes, county taxes, state taxes, sales taxes, income taxes, gas taxes, social security taxes, capital gains taxes, window taxes, payroll taxes, FICA taxes, dividend taxes. I even made up window taxes in there just to see if I could catch some of you nodding at the injustice of having to pay window taxes. Saying the word taxes makes some of your blood pressures rise and others slump in your pew in frustration and annoyance. but For the most part though, paying taxes is what it, a part of what it means to create a society. Tax dollars raised uh, fund important things like public education, military operations, road management, health care, especially care for the disabled and elderly. It also goes to pay the $174,000 salaries of those serving in the US House of Representatives which makes me slump in my chair in annoyance and frustration. But While it's true we may gripe when the paycheck comes in and we see the various taxes which seem to take precious resources away from us but the truth is deep down I think we know at some level of our existence that our society like every other society which has ever existed in human history depends on some form of taxation in order to exist death is inevitable taxes are inevitable and at first glance today Our gospel text doesn't appear to deal with life and death, but it does appear to deal with the issue of taxes. For those encountering this passage for the first time, your ears may have perked up a bit when you heard the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians ask Jesus, do God's laws permit the payment of taxes to the government? Those of you who may consider government to be an intrinsically bad thing may have sat up a bit and waited to see, is this the moment where Jesus is going to condemn the whole governmental enterprise? For those looking for an excuse to skip out on your tax prep this April may be hoping that Jesus' answer here might justify a conscientious objection on your part. But when we hear Jesus say, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar... We find ourselves disappointed because it would appear that in saying this, Jesus is offering a, a good citizen version of life in God's kingdom. You've got the kingdom of Caesar over there. You've got the kingdom of God over here. And some of the things in this world belong to Caesar. And some of the things belong to God. And these kingdoms are basically equal. And you just have to sort out what belongs to what. Like you're sorting laundry for your kids. God, Caesar, 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 God. Wait a minute, who put their clean clothes back in the dirty laundry? But what if this isn't what Jesus is saying at all? I I don't think Jesus is actually interested in talking about taxes at all. I think he's talking about our deeper allegiances, our deeper commitments. We start with taxes, but we find ourselves quickly dealing with a much larger reality. We're talking about the kingdom of God, as it turns out. Though Jesus does not mention that term once. In today's passage our gospel story takes place during Holy Week in Jerusalem the week before Jesus is going to be arrested tried condemned and executed and for the past several weeks in worship we've been journeying with Jesus during this eventful week so I ask you if you knew that you were going to die in less than a week from today how would you spend the intervening times would you be riding in parades on a donkey would you be flipping over tables at the local bank Would you be getting into complex arguments with prominent religious leaders and politicians? I mean, Jesus really, really had a terrible idea of what goes on a bucket list. But here we are, a few days before the opposition forces and the religious leadership and the local government conspire to convict Jesus of blasphemy against God and sedition against the government. Verse 15 in our text today speaks to the tone of the story. The Pharisees met together to find a way to trap Jesus in his words. Now we know that the Pharisees were passionate defenders of the faith. They knew that their faith was the only thing that kept them distinct from the Romans. And they were terribly concerned that rising secularism would pollute the beauty of of their convictions. They knew what God's law said and they did their best, better than anybody else, to keep the law as it was written and as it was told to them by their ancestors. In doing so, the Pharisees become the moral and spiritual guardrails for the religious and societal lives of Jews living in Jerusalem. And as such, the Pharisees begin to start seeing Jesus as something of an internal threat a fellow Jew but one who was potentially compromising some basic assumptions about God and the life of faith and someone who dared to say to them that despite what their ancestors told them God was not being honored by many of the things they were doing Jesus and the Pharisees were nearly part of the same political party to use an anachronism they were in agreement About much theologically but the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat by the things he challenged them on and they wanted to see if they could catch him on a hot mic saying something revolutionary and controversial I mean I know it's hard for us today to imagine that people who are from the same political party would try to ostracize and villainize their own colleagues for espousing views different than their own so I'll forgive you if you can't wrap your mind around this reality The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, the text says, and so they do what any sharp-minded politicians would do. They send in their aides, they send in their students, their disciples. Go and ask the prophet Jesus about taxes, they said. Let's see what he says on the record. So the Pharisees in training go to Jesus and they bring with them some supporters of the regional king whose name was Herod. You'll recall that Rome is in charge of the land called Judea in which Jerusalem was the prominent city. But Rome preferred to leave local rulers in power so they weren't forced to spread themselves so thin across the known world. They also found it much easier to pay off a local ruler who spoke the local language than they did to send in a Roman ruler. Herod was the name of the Jewish king who existed in power because Rome supported him. The people knew he was a puppet king. Herod knew he was a puppet king, but he was rich, he was prominent, he was important. And one part of his job involved sniffing out any uh, threat of insurrection or revolt. So we've got Pharisees in training and some supporters of the Roman-backed king. And maybe the Pharisees expected that Jesus would just publicly denounce taxation and the Roman Empire. Maybe he was going to make a big to-do about it. And then the Herodians would hear him say it and they'd run back and they'd tell Herod who would promptly execute Jesus for threatening revolt. So they go to Jesus. And they butter him up a little bit with flattery. And then they say, so what do you think? Does God's law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's the perfect question if you're trying to trap somebody. If Jesus says, yes, the Torah allows it, he has scored points with the Herodians. But the religious leaders who thought taxes were oppressive would be offended. And so would the people who were already overtaxed but if Jesus says no no the Torah forbids it he's scored points with the populace but he's made dangerous enemies of the regional king and more importantly the Roman Empire which would lead likely to an untimely death so what will Jesus do yes or no But like the finest jujitsu master, Jesus leverages his opponent's weight against them and leaves them flat on their backs in the mat, wondering what just happened to them. Show me the coin you used to pay the tax, Jesus says. And they bring him a denarius worth about a day's wages. The coin would have been stamped with the image of Tiberius, the reigning empire. It would have looked like this. This is a denarius, roughly a single day's wage. This particular denarius was printed when Emperor Tiberius was the Roman Emperor, which coincides with the events of today's Gospel reading. So this may have been uh, like the coin Jesus was handed. Now, if we look at the obverse side, that's fancy talk for the head side, you can see a bust of Tiberius and an inscription going around it. Next slide. Now, it's okay if these letters don't mean anything to you. It turns out it's actually in Latin. And it's also been abbreviated so everything fits. If we fill in the gaps, we see that the inscription actually says Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, or to save you the trouble of Google translating it right now, Caesar uh, August, excuse me, August, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the deified Augustus. And if you flip to the reverse side, you see the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which means High priest. Jesus says, Show me the coin for the Roman tax. And they pull out one of these coins, but like church. Where did these pious people get this pagan coin from? They're in the temple courts, remember. This coin was outlawed in this area due to its blasphemous inscription and the image of Caesar as a divine figure. You had to exchange these coins for temple currency so as to not blaspheme the Lord. But, upon request, they dug deep and they produced one of these coins. Leading some scholars to suggest that they were, in fact, as Jesus called them, hypocrites. Saying one thing, doing another. Confessing, God alone is the Lord. While also keeping a coin that said the same thing about Caesar. But I choose to give them some grace. And believe that they took a field trip out to the money changers. And they retrieved a coin to use for this little show-and-tell exercise. Whose image is this, Jesus asks? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they reply. The emperor's. True enough, it was Caesar's head. It was Caesar's self-inscription. And so Jesus says in response, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they're astonished and they leave. Jesus's answer was so astonishing because the first statement give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar Appears to legitimize paying taxes. It was Caesar's coin. It was his image. It belongs to him, but When Jesus says give to God what belongs to God He flips the whole thing around because look church answer me this what? exactly belongs to God If your answer to that question is not everything you may wish to review some relevant portions of our Bible starting with the opening line in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Or how about Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Or how about Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God indeed. He formed us all without our aid. Or my favorite, Psalm 50, when God says, even if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Because the whole world and everything in it already belongs to me. What belongs to God? Everything belongs to God. Everyone belongs to God. Rulers, lands, kingdoms, trees, workers, Caesars, you, me, everyone, everything, everywhere. So then what ultimately belongs to Caesar? Are you starting to see what Jesus might be driving towards here? There are not two equal halves of the world. There's no such thing as the sacred world and the secular world. There is the world singular, the reality in which the sacred and the secular commingle. And if God is the God who owns everything, then everything ultimately belongs to God. The great Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper put it this way, there is not a single square inch in all creation over which Christ does not say this belongs to me everything we own belongs to god we owe it all to god nothing held back nothing earmarked for some other thing or some person give to god everything that belongs to god jesus says so great does this mean that we should stop paying our taxes well no sorry i don't think that's what jesus is trying to get at Human society continues to depend on the giving of resources so that the entire society benefits, so that the poor might be cared for, that the widowed might not become. Homeless society depends on education to combat violence and ignorance and to promote growth and creativity We depend on cooperation in order to provide health care to keep a standing army to adjudicate in courts Many of these things are in line with God's desire for human flourishing and which ultimately point us down a road that does Lead to peaceable living so we do keep on paying our taxes We do keep giving Caesar stuff to Caesar okay fine, but Jesus is saying look there is a deeper story there is a truer reality a wider narrative than the stories that caesar's and governments and modern economics and politics tell us about caesar and god are not two equal but opposite banks that you decide to invest in put your money in caesar's bank and your spirituality in god's bank No, the reality, the primacy of God's kingdom stands over and above and beyond the kingdom of Caesar. There may be things we owe to Caesar, but we ultimately owe our whole selves, our whole humanity, our whole hearts to God. Give to God the things that are God's. Don't trivialize God's sovereignty by making it something that only is concerned with your soul on a Sunday. God's rule and God's reign, God's kingdom encompasses this entire world. And to God we owe our whole selves, our whole allegiance, our whole commitment. Pay your taxes, fine. Be a good citizen, great. But that's not the end of our story. There is another story being told in this world about how the hungry are being fed, the thirsty are being given water, the sick are being cared for, refugees are being welcomed, the destitute are finding relief. That is the story of God's kingdom taking shape, and it is a far better, far more more interesting story than the one Caesar tells from his throne. The word for us today from the Gospels is this. Give to God what belongs to God. Use the things in your life for things that further God's will and point to God's kingdom. Be compassionate. Help the weak. Nurture the suffering. Pray with the sick. Embrace your neighbors. Give your time away this week. Give your money away this week. Do whatever you need to do to remind yourself and your family that what you have ultimately belongs to God. And be mindful also of the fact that God's will is not undone by bureaucratic and governmental failure. God's will to feed and clothe the poor, to aid the widows, to bring peace to war-torn areas, to establish justice for the oppressed is something that can be brought about and is being brought about by the actions apart from governments and courts. And so we should. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but let us not trust Caesar to do the work of the Lord. Never lose sight, though, of the fact that you are part of a reality over which, in which God rules everything. We are being knit together in a fabric of reality upon God's loom and not our governments, not the terrorists, not the skeptics, not the atheists. Isaiah 45 says it this way, I am the Lord There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So as you contemplate your work this week, your studies, your rest, your duties as parents or grandparents, as you even stop and examine your friendships and your marriages, may you come to see that everything belongs to the Lord and is something that can be done for God's glory. And may we find this week that we live in this complex reality together. And may we find tangible things for us to do to remind us that this world belongs to God and does not belong to ourselves. And may we find in the end that we have been caught up in God's kingdom without even knowing it. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church of Jesus Christ say...